Wednesday, February 14, 2018. Happy Valentine's Day. Hope you're spending it with somebody you love as opposed to alone in a hotel room in New York City. I'm alone in a hotel room in New York City. Looking forward to spending my uh, Valentine's Day night with Adam Zucker, Danny Granger, and John Rothstein in studio for CBS Sports Network. That's uh, just about as romantic as it gets. Welcome back to the Island College Basketball Podcast. Matt Norlander is here with me. Happy Valentine's Day, Norlander. Happy Valentine's Day, GP, and yes, it uh, it almost always falls, obviously, on a weekday. So in our careers, Valentine's Day has been one of those things where we got to split time between our, our our jobs and our lovely our lovely wives. And unfortunately for you, yes, you are you are away from home. But I'm excited to uh, to cook my wife dinner tonight and then tell her I've got to watch some basketball. But she is absolutely amazing. And in fact, just allow me. To give a shout-out to my wife, Diane, and really a shout-out to the coaches' wives out there, uh, the wives and significant others of so many uh, sports writers and college basketball writers, because it can often, these, these, you know, these kinds of holidays or anniversaries or birthdays, sports and the news cycle waits for no one, and we do not give enough praise to our better halves on this podcast, so I am doing that right now. Yeah, well, let me uh, follow your lead because I've got a wife who is essentially for four months of the year um, raising three boys while I'm out of town uh, basically four days a week. I mean, that's, uh, that's not easy, particularly when two of them are four and under. One of them is um, 14 months old, and then one of them is a teenager going through all sorts of teenager uh, stuff. Plus, she's running a – you know, she owns a, and runs a children's boutique, so – um, though my life can become overwhelming, waking up, ranking basketball teams, only to be criticized for ranking basketball teams, recording a podcast, doing a radio show, doing video hits, doing television stuff, and everything else that goes along with being me as a professional, um, it's not easy back home either, you know, and, and I, I couldn't do what I do um, without having a, a wife who is incredibly patient uh, understanding and, and, and supportive. And so I imagine I'm like most men. Um, you, you lose sight of that sometimes. Uh, you take things for granted sometimes. But if if Valentine's Day serves no other purpose than to remind you that, yo, you, you, you're pretty lucky, you're married well, and uh, you shouldn't take that for granted because uh, this lifestyle that I live isn't uh, isn't something that every every wife in America would – would go along with, um, then the Valentine's Day serves a good purpose. Happy Valentine's Day to my wife, Kelly. Yes, and yes, I, uh, I just echo and repeat the sentiments. I am absolutely, I still am head over heels in love with my wife and uh, don't need Valentine's Day to prove it. I'm not a huge Valentine's Day guy when it comes to that kind of thing. And to be honest, she's not really either, you know, she's not all in on Valentine's Day, but, you know, got her a card and our son, you know, made a little card for her as well. And it's just, it's, uh, it's just, you know, it's a nice reminder here and there that, uh, yeah, we are definitely just very lucky to be married to such incredible women who, uh, you know, have are just so understanding, really, and the fact that, like, now we're doing three podcasts a week, uh, sometimes that can, you know, interfere with personal schedules, but uh, they get it, and they're both incredible, so yes, obviously, shout out to Kelly, who is, without question, my favorite parish. <laughs> she should be. She's the best parish. Um, she, like, for instance, and not to get too deep into this, but, so I'm gone every, uh, you know, I leave, I leave my home at 4.30 a.m. every Monday. I do not get back home until Thursday around 6.30 um, at night. Uh, 
Um, on, on Fridays, I'm busy. We, I wake up, we, do, we, we record a podcast. I have to do a radio show. On Saturdays, it's a Saturday during basketball season. Plus, she's at the children's boutique because that's a very busy day. She's, she's not there. Um, you know, she owns it, she runs it, but she doesn't work there 24 hours a day. But she is there on Saturdays because that's a, that's a speaking candidly, it's a, it's a profitable day. <laughs> and so she wants to be there for that. And then on Sunday, last weekend, I've, I had to, you know, I had Memphis Central Florida uh, sideline duty. So I've got to be at uh, FedEx Forum at 8.15 in the morning for a UCF shoot around and a Memphis shoot around. Uh, given where I live, which is about 30 minutes from FedEx Forum, there's no sense in me going back home in between shoot arounds and the game because our call time for a 5 p.m. tip is like 3 p.m. So I don't go back home. So I haven't seen her at all on Sunday. I haven't seen the kids at all on Sunday. Um, game's over at, uh, I don't know, 7, 7 o'clock. I get home by 7.45. And then guess what? We have to record a podcast. So then we do that. And then I have to file a, 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 a post for the website for that. So next thing you know, it's 9.30. Guess who's like basically asleep by the time I get through with all that? You know, the wife and, and all the kids. And so um, – yeah, that, not, not every person would put up with that. Not every per, you know, I can't imagine that's, that's fun for her. Um, but she's incredibly patient and understanding, and uh, I look forward to the end of the basketball season. I think that's the point I was trying to make. Uh, Oklahoma lost again, this time 88-78 at Texas Tech. The Sooners are now 16-9 uh, and overall, but they've lost four straight and seven of nine. Now, if you're looking for a bright side, if there is such a thing as a bright side to uh, seven losses in a nine-game stretch – Five of those seven losses are true road losses to, to possible NCAA tournament teams. So it's not good. I'm not trying to suggest that. But it's probably not as bad as some people uh, uh, realize either. It is why Oklahoma, even though you and I, Norlander, both disagreed with it, the selection committee still, as of this past Sunday, uh, had OU as a, as a top four seed in the NCAA tournament. As for Trey Young last night, he was awful. Four of 16 from the field, 0 of 9 from three-point range. First time he's ever not made a three-pointer in a collegiate game. He's now missed 18 of his past 19 three-point attempts. That's three straight losses. He missed his last two against West Virginia. Then he went 0 of 8, I think it was, against Iowa State. And then 0 of 9 last night against Texas Tech. And... um I mean, I honestly think I could hit more than one out of 19 if you, like, just gave, gave me a ball and, and a little bit of room to, to shoot. So let me start with this. Did you and I, and, and most people, I think, um, give Trey Young the player of the year honor a little too early? Is he going to mess around and lose all of the trophies? Because whatever gap used to not seemingly not be there, um, now there's a gap, and it's, I don't think it's that wide. Well, I don't know if we gave him the trophy. We just we said that he was – so far ahead that it would be extremely hard to lose it, and he is getting closer and closer by the game to losing it. I maintain, you know, Marvin Bagley the third did not play in Duke's game on Sunday. Uh, DeAndre Ayton doesn't have a shot of catching Trey. Bagley's the only player that does for freshman of the year. And uh, I maintained in the Frost Watch on Tuesday that it would still take a lot for Trey Young not to win freshman of the year, particularly if you look at uh, historically what, has been done uh, by freshmen statistically in winning freshman of the year. Trey Young is, is averaging so many more points and so many more assists and is so directly responsible for Oklahoma even being in this position to begin with. That has to be taken into account. I will remind listeners that Oklahoma last year, when it was coming off that Final Four, only won 11 games. And coming into this season, Oklahoma was an NCAA tournament 
hopeful, not considered to be a top 30 program by any means, a top 30 team, and yet Trey Young had just a ridiculous, ridiculous start and was worth all of the pub that he was getting. They're building a weird case uh, with their tournament resume because they were fairly solid in non-conference play, um, only losing to Arkansas, and then they lost to Alabama in the Big 12 SEC Challenge at the end of January. I'm absolutely open to discussing particularly Jalen Brunson above all other contenders, as we mentioned on last week's podcast, um, as really just about just about being stride for stride with Trey Young at this point. And I think we agree on this, Parrish, although it is fun we, when we disagree. I think we do agree that if you're going to win National Player of the Year, this isn't a hard and fast rule, but like kind of should be on like a five-seater or better. You know, ideally a one or a two. Um, but if there are certain years where the one-seeds and two-seeds might not have a, a certain statistical player that's standing out, can uh, might be able to make a, an argument elsewhere. But right now, Jalen Brunson is the best player on a one-seed. And with how consistent he's been able to be, I think that's valid. You look across at the other teams that are on that one and two line, to me, Devontae Graham's been pretty good, but but isn't has not been as uh, effective as uh, as Jalen Brunson, in my opinion. Virginia has very much been win by committee overall. Auburn, similarly, Mustafa Heron's been good, but he's not a National Player of the Year candidate. Gary Clark's been good. You cannot say Gary Clark, and I almost called him Gary Clark Jr. You cannot say Gary Clark is a National Player of the Year legitimate front runner candidate. And Purdue spreads the love around so much. There's really not someone there. Miles Bridges potentially, yes. Marvin Bagley, sure, he's in the he's in the conversation. And maybe even though I just can't envision a scenario in which a player from Texas Tech wins a National Player of the Year, when you looked at how well Keenan Evans played head to head straight up against Trey Young last night. Certainly, he should absolutely be in the mix and in the conversation, particularly if Texas Tech won the Big 12 outright and got a one seed. You'd look at who the impact player was on that team more than any others. I think Keenan Evans would have a case. But right now, Trey Young has still done enough statistically over the course of the season. We can certainly look at the past three weeks, GP, and say this has been detrimental to his case, and that's totally fair. I think he's still in command of freshman of the year. Player of the year is up for debate. I do think we're going to see a turn for the better with that team and with Trey Young going forward. I think this is the slump, and the season's going to have an interesting narrative to it. I think they'll they'll lose at Kansas, certainly, but I expect a big bounce back uh, upcoming and them to play well in the Big 12 tournament so that when we get to the NCAA tournament, I think Trey Young will be the reasonable pick for National Player of the Year. My criteria for National Player of the Year is um, you have to be a great player on a on a great or really good or at least – good college basketball team you know uh, we've spent so much time talking about Trey Young's leading the nation in uh, points per game leading the nation in assists per game and that is remarkable if only because you know nobody's ever done it but that in and of itself isn't good enough for me because in most years though leading the league in home runs is a big thing everybody knows who's doing that if you follow baseball at least um, leading the NBA in scoring is is a big deal. You know, people talk about scoring titles when they, when they quote someone's resume. Um, leading the country in college basketball in scoring is not something that is discussed. And most people have no idea on an annual basis who leads the country in scoring because most years it's somebody who plays at the mid-major or low-major level. So simply doing that I don't think is enough um, to earn National Player of the Year um, if only because when other players do it, it's not enough. We don't even consider – like, how often do we even consider the nation's leading scorer for All-America honors? Like, not often. And so um, I think Trey Young's more than him playing better. He obviously needs to play better, and these two things probably go hand in hand. His team needs to win. 
his team needs to stay respectable. They're still fine right now. I've still got them in the top 25-1, and one, and I know not everybody agrees with that, but I still think they've got one of the best 26 resumes in the country. And if they are a ranked team and Trey Young is still leading the nation in, assist in, 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 leading the nation in points and assists, then I think Trey Young is going to be the national player of the year. He would be my vote right now. But Oklahoma needs to, to get right or at least not get worse because you know, Doug McDermott was not on a great team. But he was clearly the national player of the year. I think, you know, Kevin Durant was not on a great team, but he was clearly the national player of the year. I think Trey Young can be um, more like them than, say, you know, Frank Mason, who was on a, a, a great team. You know, Trey Young can be a, a, a statistical monster on a good enough team. I think that's the best case scenario right now. Uh, but clearly, they gotta they gotta start winning. I can rationalize these losses by telling you they're on the road to likely or at least possible NCAA tournament teams for a while. But um, after a while, when they start to stack on top of each other, on top of each other, on top of each other, it becomes a harder argument to make. I think their next game is it's obviously this weekend. I believe it's against Texas at home. But let me double check that. Um, it is, yes, Texas at home. So you got to get that one. And then at Kansas, whatever. I, I really think you just got to get your home games going forward. They've got three home games left, two road games. You got to get the home games. Maybe also get Baylor at Baylor if you can. And that would probably be enough to put Trey Young in a, in a, um, a, a pretty safe position for national player of the year. But, uh, the losses have, have got to stop or else it's going to be a, you know, Jalen Brunson ain't going to start losing. You know, Marvin Bagley, I don't think, is going to start losing too much. And those are, I think, his, his two biggest competitors uh, when it comes to that award. Let's move on. Uh, since we last spoke, and we had referenced this on a podcast uh, earlier in the season when I think you were discussing hot seat, after your hot seat uh, column that you posted at CBSSports.com. But since we last spoke, Andy Kennedy has resigned from Ole Miss, effective at the end of the season. And though I, I don't know exactly how this went down. I do know the story. The public story is that Andy picked up the phone on Sunday and called Ross Bjork, his athletic director, and said, hey, let's go ahead and, and announce this and remove this cloud. Uh, you know, it's no fun you having to answer these questions after every game. No fun me having to answer these questions after every game. No fun with our players having to hear this stuff. Um, let's just let's just go ahead. 12 seasons. It's been a good run. Let's be done with it. I, I think probably Andy makes that call for all of the reasons that um, he acknowledged, but also because, you know, you can either make that call now or wait and let Ross make that call at the end of the year. But that's where this was headed. And so I've had some people say, well, why? It, I, I do think it's important to note, even though he is, quote, resigning, they are still going to pay his full contract out. And that's basically an agreement of, hey, let's do this in the most respectable way we can possibly do it. And um, and then you can still get your money and we can still move on and get, you know, get a new coach in here and maybe try to get some new life in the program. And everybody, everybody wins in a perfect scenario. Andy Kenny would be um, in the top 25 at Ole Miss and headed to another NCAA tournament and and, uh, you know, hotty toddy. But given that that's not the reality um, and we know that we want to move on, let's move on in the most respectable way for you. And and this is at least uh, this seems like the best way to do it, which is why I thought it makes sense before last night because they lost at Arkansas at home they had three home games left and if Andy hasn't announced anything or Ole Miss hasn't announced anything those three home games are met with fans who are still screaming on message boards after every loss we've got to fire Andy Kennedy he he's uh, mediocre at best we've got to move on now that that awkwardness is removed from the equation everybody knows what the score is those same message board posts go from that to 
hey, um, let's show let's show some class to the winningest coach in Ole Miss history. You know, in these final two home games, video tributes. You don't give video tributes to the guy who's on the hot seat, but a guy who's already announced he's leaving after the season. You can sort of send him off in a in an easier way because he is the winningest coach in Ole Miss history. He is somebody who never finished worse than seven and nine in the previous eleven seasons as the Ole Miss coach. He did entering this season in the previous eleven seasons win more games at Ole Miss than any than any other school in the SEC outside of Kentucky and Florida. That is remarkable. And his average finish in the league the past five years entering this season, in other words, since the SEC expanded, uh, was the third best in the SEC. Only Kentucky and Florida were better. So I know he didn't go to enough NCAA tournaments for anybody's liking. Two and 12 is not good enough. Um, but there's also something to be said for never taking one of the most difficult programs in, in the SEC and running it straight to the bottom. For 11 years, he kept it middle or best, never finished worse than sixth in the league, always middle or up. And um, listen, that's not the type of thing that gets you into the Hall of Fame, but it is the type of thing I think once the awkwardness from the situation is removed, maybe even Ole Miss fans who have probably underappreciated him on some level, can maybe appreciate on the way out. Andy Kennedy will land on his feet. I think he's going to have two interesting options going forward. Uh, and I believe his contract just goes through 2018-2019. Ole Miss is going to honor that, and they don't have to pay a ton of money to him, which is going to help their situation going forward. Kennedy could opt to take... Um, I think a quality mid-major job, if it opens and he wants that, I think any mid-major athletic director would be wise to take a good look at Andy Kennedy. Or, you know, uh, you know, obviously uh, Kennedy has connections with Bob Huggins and Frank Martin, and if he wants to end up on a staff w- at the high major level, I think that he's going to have the ability to do that. So I'm, I'm not too concerned about his future. He's got a lot of basketball coaching ahead of him. If he wants it, I also think he'd actually be good on television. Personally, I haven't talked to Andy about that. Don't know if that's something that he'd be interested in. These guys can sometimes uh, be surprised in how they are wired and what their mood might be when their job actually comes to an end, whether or not they want to take a year or two off or if they want to keep going with the grind. It's, it kind of depends. Um, with the job itself... To me right now, Kermit Davis and Steve Forbes are the two obvious ones. Mike White's a big name. He played there. There's no shot Mike White's leaving Florida to coach Ole Miss. So you're going to hear maybe a, a few names out there that don't that really aren't based in reality. I would be like outright shocked to, to if Mike White went back to Ole Miss uh, and leave Florida. You just don't do that. Florida's a top three job in the conference, and Ole Miss is a bottom three job in the conference. Forbes and Kermit Davis are the two obvious candidates and really the two they should probably target um i i think kermit would do tremendous there you mentioned forbes for you know to, he would fit flawlessly at memphis i agree with that remains to be seen if memphis opens and then forbes you know if he opts to want to leave east tennessee state does he want to go after a job like old miss now or you know old miss at its at the height of its powers and memphis at the height of its powers it's two different things altogether maybe you want to wait that out so um we'll see where they go but if you know when these jobs open, inevitably it becomes a question of what names will be out there. I haven't done too much digging, thinking about it, but when when I saw that you broke the news here, I thought, okay, Forbes for sure, and then Kermit Davis, who should have gotten a, a really good look at LSU last year. 
You should come up, man. He has won uh, at least, what, 24 games every single season except one over the past six or seven seasons. Made two straight NCAA tournaments. Is going to be in position again to get there with Middle Tennessee. He's done a good job. The one thing that might hold him back is just his age. Um, I, fair or not, he's 58. And I know Larinaga got hired away from Mason to coach Miami. And relatively speaking, that's done. they've done pretty well overall. Better than anyone expected, I think it's fair to say. Um, so will Ross Bjork, the athletic director there, if he decides to take a long look at Kermit Davis, which he should, um, will the age thing prevent him, yes or no? Not saying that it should. or I, I personally think that it shouldn't. But if, uh, if he doesn't, perhaps that's the one thing they might want to just try and get a Mike White type of model where you get a, uh, a 37 to 43-year-old young guy up and coming to kind of take over a program that needs it. What are your thoughts on uh, what might happen there for Kennedy's replacement, Gary? You touched on, on the guys that I think are, are realistic candidates. Um, I would add probably Eric Musselman to that list. He's obviously killing it in Nevada. He was an SEC assistant only for, I think, a year. But still, he's been through the league. He was an assistant coach. Everybody knows he was a head coach in the NBA, also an assistant coach at Memphis. So he's familiar with the area. And um, obviously, I have a high opinion of Eric, so um, you know, I would yeah, like he makes sense to me. I think it is those three though. It's Forbes, Kermit Davis, and uh, and and Muss. And Forbes is like, you know, he's recruited the SEC for years, recruited Memphis for years. He already has relationships in the city of Memphis that are stronger, as long as I'm speaking candidly, than the the University of Memphis's current staff has. And that's him coaching at East Tennessee State. Now, that doesn't mean he can come in and, and beat, you know, uh, high majors uh, for Memphis uh, area products while he's at ETSU. Like, there's a certain ceiling on what you can accomplish in the recruiting world um, at a job like that job. But you let him at, at Ole Miss recruit Memphis to Oxford, Mississippi, to that brand-new, beautiful on-campus facility, um, I, I think he'd knock it out of the park. So any of those three guys uh, make sense. I do think that Ross will, will look at all of them. And as for what you said about Michael White, my instincts were the same as yours. You just don't leave. You know, it's a little bit like if Clemson wanted to hire Will Wade, they needed to do that last year. Now you probably can't hire Will Wade. Like once he gets to, you know, a, a traditionally better job at LSU and gets it going like he does in the recruiting world right now, um, you, you probably can't get him to come home after that. I, I, my instincts are the same with Michael. If you wanted to hire Michael White, you needed to hire him from Louisiana Tech. You don't hire him from Florida. That said, for whatever it's worth, and it might be worth absolutely nothing, but I've had multiple people who are in the know with this kind of stuff tell me in the past 24 hours, don't be surprised if he at least listened. Don't be like, – like, like it wouldn't be the most shocking thing in the world to these people if he actually left Florida for Ole Miss. You know, I, I, I would say that that's a rare thing, people to leave superior jobs for inferior jobs even when it is their alma mater – but people's at least a couple of people I talked to seem to think that Michael's a little different in that way, and and he might at least listen. That it wouldn't be, it would be shocking if a Florida coach ever left for Ole Miss. Except it might not be shocking to some people if Mike White was the guy who did such a thing. Uh, we'll see. As for Forbes and as it relates to uh, Memphis Ole Miss, um, clearly um, you know the ceiling at Memphis is higher than it is at the ceiling at Ole Miss. Like everything we know about college basketball suggests that to be true, but. You know, I don't think you turn down Ole Miss because you're waiting on Memphis to maybe open and to maybe offer you um, if you can get that Ole Miss job with that brand-new facility. Plus, I don't think people uh, take this into account enough when talking about jobs. Oxford is an awesome place to live, you know. So, like, you, you're raising a family, too, 
and, and there are – I've had college coaches tell me they didn't take jobs because I didn't want to raise my family in that town. I didn't want to raise my family in that little college town. Oxford is the exact opposite. Um, Oxford is a beautiful place to raise a family, and um, it, it checks a lot of boxes for me. I, I don't want to speak for Forbes, but if I were Steve Forbes and Ole Miss offered me the job, um, I'm taking that job. Let's move on to a column you posted earlier today at CBSSports.com. It's about Dan Hurley. I thought it was really well done. Um, you sat down with him last week, and he opened up about his reputation, which um, sometimes guys lack self-awareness. They can't acknowledge how they appear to outsiders, but but Danny uh, did in a in a remarkable way. You know, basically acknowledged to you, yes, I um, man, I'm embarrassed by. I think he even used that word. I'm embarrassed by the way I used to act on the sideline. Now he's not as cool and calm as Brad Stevens, and he had a funny Brad Stevens story in the column, but uh, he is different today than he was even just a couple of years ago and I know for a fact and he acknowledged his family had spoken to him but I know for a fact other people had talked to him as well like yo this is hurting you like if your goal is to and I'm not saying he's trying to bounce out of Rhode Island he's obviously got a great thing going but like if your goal is to get one of those big big boy jobs um, you're on your sideline demeanor is a problem because keep in mind, we live in a world where, like, Larry Eustacey just lost his job essentially for yelling and cussing and, and being a, a bit of a crazy person. Um, we, you know, you can't coach the way you used to coach anymore. I hear that from coaches all across uh, the country. And so I think he was wise to, to really work on um, the way he comes across, the, the way he talks to officials. Uh, the way the, the 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 way he provides visuals for for television, I do think it it it's just better in general. But it also helps you if you're you know if you're trying to to not turn off other athletic directors. And to hear him talk about all of that stuff in a pretty open way, I thought was uh, I thought was interesting. Yeah, when you know, for, for those listening, when I say Dan Hurley, you immediately think eyes bulging, maybe gyrations on the sidelines, stalking, harassing officials. Uh, you know, mouth agape, overreactions. And that has been a lot of what has been him. And to be frank, I didn't discuss this in the story, but his brother as well. And I will openly admit that I'm actually uh, equal parts fascinated and uh, and sort of for the Hurleys being characters that bring more color to the sport. And college basketball has always been a sport that has had Different kinds of men take these coaching jobs, and that's why I think it's often fun to cover the sport, is because it's not like the NFL where you kind of have the same dude coaching every single team. No, they have personalities. They've always been media-friendly, by and large, generally speaking, and so that's good for the sport. But there's a line between that and them being completely over the top, totally demonstrative, embarrassing yourself, your family, going after officials, hurting your reputation, hurting your team because you're relentless with refs. And I don't want to give away too much of the story. I do highly recommend everyone reads it. Dan was great with his time. I do want to bring people in just a little bit here and stuff that wasn't in the story and maybe a little bit more about Dan. He has always been, whenever I have seen him on the road and recruiting after a game or whatever, the ironic thing with Dan is that when you talk to him, he almost just kind of talks like, you know, talks like, hey, Matt, how you doing? Like, he's very, he's a low talker. He can just be kind of just like casual energy. There is something different about him when a game starts. And it absolutely is something that helped him 
get to where he is. When you're a high school coach and you're coaching St. Benedict's Prep and you're coaching Tristan Thompson and J.R. Smith and Xavier Munford and all these uh, future guys that will wind up with NBA contracts, you are able to influence officials at that level by having the last name Hurley, by going after them in an aggressive way, and probably getting three to six calls your way that wouldn't have happened with a different kind of coach. It It helps you when you're at Wagner and you get your first college job. But there reached a point, there reached a ceiling for Dan on that kind of behavior. And about two years ago, and I, won't, I, I would like to point people to the story. I'm not going to give up everything in this podcast. But there was a phone call he had two years ago when he was deba- debating whether or not to leave Rhode Island. And it has not been a coincidence. It has not been the only thing, but it has not been a coincidence. He said that, you know, last year we made the NCAA tournament finally. And this season, they're 21-3. and three. They really, if they run the table, they have got a legitimate shot, I think, no matter what happens around them. If they don't lose again, they could land and should land on the three line. Be a program record. And these two huge seasons for Rhode Island have coincided with Hurley really, truly changing um, his total approach here. And I want to clarify for people listening, like this... You might think, oh, Norlander went up there, the S, you know, the sports information director reached out to him. Hey, man, can we get a story on Dan? He's really changed like what he's done. This was not that at all. I went up there to, one, just check in and write about the team, but I was going to write total, something totally separate on Hurley. And then I was the one that kind of just started getting him to talk about this. He wasn't really talking about it at first. And then it kind of uncovered... He kind of uncovered some stuff that he hadn't revealed publicly before. So this was never going to be the story idea, but it does coincide, and he has certainly changed. And I'm not I'm not certain if or when he'll leave Rhode Island. He's got that thing rolling. They should be really, really good again next year. He's got that program now where Archie had Dayton in the league, where Shaka had VCU in the league. And if he wants, he could probably run the league for the next three to five seasons if he really wants. The question will be, he is an East Coast slash Northeast kind of guy. There's only really two to four jobs you know, from D.C. North, maybe Pittsburgh East, that would give him the kind of opportunity to allow him to have a better shot at making the Final Four on an annual basis on getting four- and five-star talent. When those jobs open, we don't know, but he definitely has a lot of support there. And I find him to be a fascinating character because I don't want him to lose some of the things that, frankly, make GP that make him funny like he's a super funny dude and some of the animation during the games uh it's it's great to watch but there is a difference between that and just acting like in his words a complete effing lunatic and he has toned some of that down and uh the story kind of details how he got there and why yeah i like danny a lot i like danny and bobby you know i i i didn't know them 20 years ago um i probably hadn't seen them in their craziest days but um i've got to know each of them over the past few years and uh they're both obviously um, good at good at their jobs. I mean, that's how they're both operating. You know, they're both heading to the NCAA tournament. Um, in in terms of, I was just thinking of this while you were speaking. You know, Dan, like there are a handful of characters in college basketball. When you watch them on television, they come across as a certain way. But if you ever sit down with them, like in the lobby of a hotel, they're completely different. They sound different. They, uh, you know, like you said, Dan is a low talker, as opposed to this like self-acknowledged maniac on the sideline. Uh, another guy, Bob Huggins, is exactly like that. You know, if you watch Bob Huggins on the sideline, he can seem like this imposing, intimidating character. You ever sit with Hugs like in a hotel lobby or more more likely uh, a bar till 3.30 in the morning? Uh, soft talker, 
very smart, very thoughtful, not, certainly not. And I think his reputation in those ways has changed drastically over the past decade or so, but certainly not the Bob Huggins that people thought they knew when he was, you know, coaching Cincinnati and all those jukes. Like it's in, he's a different guy than, than how he comes across. And then perhaps this isn't a coincidence. They, they work together. Frank Martin is another guy who looks like a, just an imposing absolute maniac sometimes on the sideline if you ever sit down with with frank and just like hang out drink a cup of coffee he's um just calm smart uh like a, a totally different demeanor and so sometimes that the way you envision people based on what you see when they're on the sideline um can create an inaccurate image of, of who they actually are which is circles back to the initial point about dan hurley if all you ever did was watch him coach basketball um, you would you would think, oh, geez, I don't want anything to do with that guy. Like if you're an athletic director, but you sit down with him, you see a completely different side of him, and the idea that he's trying to close that gap um, in a very intentional way, I think is probably productive, but um, but just good for his his life in general, whether it's his professional life or his personal life. The other interesting thing that he pointed out, which is something I've I've thought about as well. You know, he said, like, right now they've won 16 games in a row after last night. He said, th- things are going too well. And he said, things have never gone this well for me. And then he touched on something that I don't know that I've ever talked to Danny about it, but I've, I've thought about it a lot. Like, what it must like, what it, what it must be like to be Dan Hurley. Because as a player, you were good, but you weren't your brother. You weren't Bobby Hurley. And as a coach, you're accomplished, but your dad's in the Naismith Memorial Hall of Fame. And then combine all that with Bobby got into coaching later but was the first one to get the Power 5 job. Uh, Bobby got into coaching later but then, like, look up this season and had, a, you know, suddenly a team ranked in the top five. And I remember, I, I, I guess I could say this, you, like, when Bobby, when Arizona State beat somebody big, I don't know if it was Xavier or Kansas. Kansas. I think it was Kansas, yeah. Um, <laughs> you, you called Dan to get him to talk about Bob. And I actually texted you. I was like, dude, the last thing Dan wants to do is talk about how awesome Bobby is. He's been doing that his entire life. Like, hey, isn't it awesome how Bobby won a national championship and Bobby went to the NBA and now Bobby got the Arizona State job? And so I was just sort of goofing with you a little bit. But now look at him. Like he's, you know, he's headed to the NCAA tournament. He's got a top 20 team. The quote is actually this. It's going too well. Uh S has never gone this well for me since ever in basketball. I've always followed Bob in high school. I was good. I was really good. But I wasn't effing as good as Bob. At Seton Hall, like my last couple of years, scored 1,000 points. But it's always been hard. I've always had tough jobs. Got fired as an assistant at Rutgers. Now in the midst of a historic season for me, this is weird, man. I don't know how to act. I do think maybe for the first time in his life, like he's operating at a level where he is something different than his father's son, than his brother's brother. He's like Dan Hurley, the guy running the Atlantic 10, and that must be a nice feeling for him. That's kind of the unspoken driving theme of the story here. Um, yeah, because uh, it's funny. I was uh, – I talked to – like before we really got into it, I go – I'll bring you – kind of pulled back the curtain just a little bit more here. Um, I go, Dan, I'm going to write a story, and I'm not going to mention your brother, and I'm not going to mention your father. I'm going to be the first person ever to write a Dan Hurley feature and not do it. And he's kind of joking, cool. And then he can't help himself. Like, he references his father and his brother 
and then you kind of understand why, oh, okay, well, this really is why he is who he is and was who he was and acted the way he acted because he was conditioned to be that way. And I thought it was interesting as we were talking and the conversation had different different paces and different volumes and hit on different things. And at the one point where he just kind of was just like sitting back and rattling off just casually, almost like we're talking here right now, it was when he was comparing himself to his father and referencing his father's desire and stress that came with basketball and how he's just never been Bobby and he'll never be Bobby. And at the same time, he's kind of like laughing. He's happy and it's, it's, so much a part of him it's something that he'll always be chasing that you kind of realize he can stand on his own but he almost doesn't want to like he always wants to have that part of him there so it's kind of the unspoken driving piece uh, theme of the piece there that I don't really tip the card on until the very end because I think Dan would acknowledge that as well. Uh, he is he should be getting credit for what he has done because you know he has been able to do this on his own but there's just even though it's obvious, I guess there's no denying that who he is in that family structure has uh, has helped him mostly for better, but yes, sometimes for worse. And it is something, I'll just kind of wrap it up with this as the piece notes. Um, he knows he's gotten better with his behavior. People in that program, his family, his friends know that he's gotten better. Um, he says the two technical fouls he got this year were total reputation technical fouls that he didn't think he deserved, which I thought was also funny because most coaches, some coaches will say, no, I deserve that one. Plenty of times I think not. He knows that this is years away from being changed, though. Like right now, people think, nope, the Hurley brothers, they're freaking psychos. They're out of their mind. And even if that hasn't been the case for most of the past two seasons, it will still be years before that is generally accepted to be um, the general reputation of them. Very quickly before we get out of here, I want to touch on a couple of games that are scheduled for Thursday night, maybe uh, uh, three games that are scheduled for, for Thursday night. One of them is uh, – well, I'll, just, I'll just list the games right now. Cincinnati at Houston I think is interesting. Temple at Wichita State is interesting. I'll tell you why in a second. Arizona at Arizona State, obviously interesting. Um, let's start with Cincinnati at Houston. Uh, the Bearcats haven't lost uh, in forever. Um, but Kelvin Sampson does have a, a Houston team that – uh, seems certainly not a lot for the NCAA tournament, tournament but, but it seems like it's on its way to the NCAA tournament. tournament. Houston, Houston in Houston, Houston capable, capable of snapping up Cincinnati's uh, win streak. streak. Cougars got a great shot, and what a good moment here. First of all, 7 o'clock, CBS Sports Network, big-time game on Thursday night. This is Kelvin Sampson who got, rightfully, that program got so much good pub in uh, in the offseason when the hurricane hit and all they did to help out and, and everyone else, uh, colleges, coaches, everywhere, and sending goods and, and shirts and all that for the hurricane victims. And now they've turned around. Sure, they've zipped under the radar. They don't have a great non-conference slate. That, you know The teams they've beaten, they have a nice win over Arkansas. There's really not a lot else there. But they've done well. Here is your shot. you got to beat Cincinnati at home. you got to split the season series. Um, we typically, you know, when we talk about these games, we like to offer our, uh, our predictions as wrong as they may be. I think Houston is going to win this game. Cincinnati has been great. I believe Cincinnati has the longest win streak now standing in the country. I know Rhode Island's won 16, Cincinnati 17. I think that's longer than anyone else, GP. I'm going to take Houston in there. I think they've got enough defense. This will be a low-scoring affair. I'm going to say Houston like 64 to 61. I expect a pretty good game. Cincinnati is still a bit underrated. Um, I, I, I look forward to watching this game, and I think the Cougars have a good shot. Who are you going to take? I'll take Cincinnati on the road. Um, I thought Kelvin had a great quote about them earlier in the week. I don't know if you saw it, but he said somebody asked him about Cincinnati, and he said they're not hard to prepare for, but they're a monster to play. 
And, I mean, that's, that sums it up. I mean, they, listen, they, there's nothing fancy about what they're doing. They're just going to guard you like crazy. They're going to kill you on the offensive boards. They're going to take the ball away from you. Gary Clark is phenomenal. Um, Jacob Evans is really good. They're, um, they're good enough offensively. And, and they're grown men. Like, you know, we watch some of these teams around the country and they're playing like with 18, 19 year olds. I mean, that was sort that that is the identity now that that Mick has created with this program or, or perhaps reestablished with this program in the post Bob Huggins era. Um, no matter, you know, the, the roster changes, Sean Kilpatrick comes, Sean Kilpatrick goes, whatever. Um, they, 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 there seems to be a Cincinnati looks similar to Cincinnati every year, no matter who is in the Cincinnati uniforms. And it's been that way for, for a pretty good while now. Um, it's a testament to, to, to how Mick rebuilt that because he inherited a mess and then how he's been able to stabilize it, not by going out and getting McDonald's All-Americans, but by just getting being a great evaluator, um, an incredible developer of talent, and then just building it into tough tough teams every single year and he's got another one perhaps as tough as right now i think one way or another they'll figure out a way to get a win at houston but obviously i wouldn't be surprised if if houston wins that game tempo at wichita state uh not something i would have uh uh, circled um before i don't know yesterday uh except for wichita state has already lost to temple at temple but also because of this temple's like on the bubble of the ncaa tournament like they've They've got really good wins. They've beaten Clemson. They've beaten Auburn. They've beaten Wichita State. They got a lot of losses too. Um, but we got to put. I, I guess I'm not the guy who sits down with a bracket every day and compares, you know, the resumes of all of the automatic bids plus the possible at-large bids. Jerry Palm does that. I don't do that, and so I don't attempt to talk about who's in and who's out at the bottom of the bracket because I don't think you can intelligently do that unless unless you're just copying what Jerry Palm says or unless you actually put pen to paper. And so it never occurred to me that like Temple was on the bubble of the NCAA tournament, but I started looking at some brackets. I mean, it frustrates me. Like, I don't do that for the same reasons it frustrates me when people try to do that with the top 25 and one. They'll say, there's no way that team can be ranked. Well, how do you know there's no way that team can be ranked? So I sit down and rank 26 teams in. See if you can find 26 better than them. Make your intelligent case, and I'll listen to you. Then you might have a point. But just saying this team's lost two games in a row, there's no way they could be ranked. Well, you, you, you're not doing this every day. You don't know what you're talking about. So if I'm going to be that guy, I can't be the guy screaming about who's in and out when I haven't actually looked at it. But I looked at what everybody else is doing, and everybody else has Temple very close to the NCAA tournament. And obviously, uh, getting a win at Wichita State would, uh, would move them in the right direction. They're going to be a big underdog, but the idea that on Valentine's Day, Temple is in a position to make the NCAA tournament is, is not something I, I expected. I did expect it in the preseason. I thought Temple would be in the mix in the American and be in this spot, but not with the resume that it has. Uh, they have wins over Auburn and Clemson in the non-conference that are aging tremendously well, and the win over Wichita State is huge. Uh, Temple, listen, there's a number of very fascinating bubble cases coming up this season. Nebraska is certainly one of them. But no team's fate is tw- kind of twisting on the wind uh, like a leaf like Temple's is right now because they have the game at Wichita State, and I think the Shockers will win. But then they get a home opportunity against Houston this upcoming weekend, and they still have to play at UConn and at Tulsa. And they really are going to need to, I think, take at least one of those two on the road to really help their case overall. So this could go either way. Temple could really – I mean, if they were to sweep Wichita State, that would be massive. You do that and you're able to beat Houston at home, 
boy, oh boy, does their case look really, really good. And yes, as always, losses matter. But with a 17-10 and 10 record with the wins they would have, they'd have a really compelling case at that point with still plenty of room to go there. I will take the Shockers at home. In fact, I think, I think Wichita State's going to uh, ex- exact revenge here um, in a dominant fashion. Temple was able to squeak out that game on its home floor in overtime earlier this month. I expect uh, I expect the Shockers to win easily by double digits, though. Yeah, I, I think Wichita State wins the game. But just the idea that Temple is in a position where Fran Dumphy can look at his team and say, hey, listen, we're underdogs, but we go out and win this one, we're going to wake up and probably be on the right side of the bubble, at least temporarily. That's a, that's a decent position to be in. And so um, – that's a game worth keeping your eye on. And then last one, Arizona at Arizona State. Obviously, Arizona was, State was in the top five uh, when they previously played and actually played them pretty tough in Tucson. Now we're at ASU. Uh, you think Arizona State evens that regular season series at 1-1? Total toss-up game to me, GP. Um, I, uh, I'm going to take Arizona on the road. Uh, I just... I don't know. I, I like Arizona's personnel more, although I think this can be a really, really fun game, a game that should be decided in the 80s, a game that I'd love to see Trey Holder and, and Shannon Evans and Cody Justice for Arizona State really um, take advantage of that home floor and go after Arizona, which has been wobbly. There's no doubt about it. But I will take the Wildcats here. I, I just don't like... I don't like Arizona State's interior enough. You know, Romella White's a freshman just like DeAndre Ayton, but he doesn't have three inches and about 45 pounds on Ayton, and I don't think they've got enough down low with how well Dusan Ristich has been playing. Maybe maybe uh, Bobby Hurley is able to get a game plan going that makes it more even more competitive and more compelling than when these teams played. You know, listeners will remember as we led up to uh, to New Year's Eve the, the very interesting game to start the Pac-12 season was the Arizona Arizona State game that started off league play when Arizona State was undefeated at the time. That ended up being their first loss of the season. I will take the Wildcats in a close one. Give me an 86-83. Yeah, I'll go with Arizona State just at home. They've won three straight at home. Um, I, I, I think you said you like Arizona's roster better, of course. I mean, Arizona's got a, a top-five roster in America. They just haven't been a top-five team in America. Um, and – Yes, can they win at ASU? Of course they can win at ASU. Uh, you know, other schools have already done it, like Oregon and Utah. So if they can do it, certainly uh, Arizona can. But uh, I'll take Arizona. We can't do, uh, like, half a podcast on one Hurley brother and then pick against the other Hurley brother. That'd be wrong. So give me Arizona State, something like, I don't know, 85-84. Arizona State gets the win and improves to 8-6 and six in the uh, in the Pac-12 to 20-6 and six overall. And I know there was a stretch where uh, they had not won, I think you referenced this, back-to-back games in like a million years. And they were start, they were certainly trending the wrong direction, maybe not on their way to the bubble. But, again, for a team that was at one point ranked, I believe, top two or three in America, uh, headed the wrong direction. Now they seem headed back the right direction. I think they can get a win on Thursday night, a home win against Arizona. But, as always, we will see. Shouts! To Devin Downey, shouts to Chester, South Carolina, shouts to Terry, MF, and Teagle, the legend. And remember to please go subscribe to the Ion College Basketball Podcast over at iTunes. It is important. We do appreciate it. Rate it favorably if you're kind enough to do it. Five stars, nice comments. It only takes a few seconds. We will talk for at least 45, 55, 65 minutes, three times a week about 
you know, probably Kentucky and Trey Young and Kansas and, you know, the normal stuff. But, like, we'll be here three times a week, and all we ask in return is that if you got a couple minutes, uh, go spend it on iTunes and, uh, and help us out there. So um, thank you. We will talk again on Friday morning. And uh, until then, take care.